Hi there, Pastor Austin Vondracek here. Thank you for joining us at Rosewood Church Online. My prayer for you is that this message will be used by God to bless, teach, and challenge you today. And whether you call Rosewood home and are catching up on a past message, or you're one of our many long-distance partners who tune in every week, would you consider giving back to support the ministries and missions of Rosewood Church? You can do so easily through our website, rosewoodchurch.org. And if you're listening and you're local to the West Michigan area, we would love to have you in person when the time is right for you. Again, I pray this blesses you and helps you grow in your love of Jesus Christ. Good morning. morning. Welcome to Rosewood. Uh, My name is Austin Vondercheck. I'm one of the pastors here at Rosewood. It's great to have all of you here with us today, whether you're here in uh, this house or you're in your house um, or maybe someone else's house. However it is you're joining us, it's great to have you. And we are starting a new series today that's going to bring us right up to Easter and Easter's not that far away, so this is just a little, a little shorty. Uh, and we're calling it the, the Great Betrayal. And this is going to be the lens through which we look at the final week of Jesus' life. Uh, Jesus knew what it meant to be doubted, betrayed, and abandoned. And all of that occurred just in the last week of his life, leading up to his crucifixion and ultimately to his resurrection. Now, the Bible is, is not a story about just a bunch of spiritual superstars. In, in fact, a great deal of God's story as accounted in Scripture is the story of God's redemptive plan continuing to move forward despite the faithlessness of his followers, despite the failings of his followers. And I personally, I find that extremely comforting, that when we read Scripture, We don't just see these people who are like from another world. We see ourselves. We see ordinary people that God uses in extraordinary ways. And again, sometimes despite what they do, and still today, sometimes despite what we do. Today we're going to be starting with, uh, with the Apostle Peter. Now at times, Peter does come across certainly as a bit of a, of a spiritual superstar, but if you look at his story as a whole, which we're going to today, you'll see that he is not a superstar. Uh, he did a lot of incredible things, but many of those, those great things that he did and acts of faith that he performed eventually led to pride, and you know what comes after pride, pride cometh before the fall, and Peter had his fall for sure, and that's part of what we are going to be looking at. In fact, we're going to be looking at a few, uh, in a little more depth, a few uh, places of uh, Peter's life and interactions uh, with Jesus and about Jesus uh, later in Jesus's ministry. And the first place we're going to start is actually at the Last Supper. And while Jesus is having this final meal with his disciples before he would be arrested and led off to be crucified, uh, he tells his disciples, he says, one of you is going to abandon me or betray me, uh, and another one of you, or actually all of you, are going to fall away. And Peter hears this and he takes offense to it. And he, he responds to Jesus by saying, I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. 
From there, Jesus then goes to the garden to pray. And while he's there, he's in this private place away from the eyes and the ears of the people around him, the crowds that at that time, some of whom are still supporting him. And while he's there, Judas comes leading this mob and he takes uh, Jesus away. He arrests him and he's taken away, eventually being led to this kind of sham trial system and then ultimately to his crucifixion. And this is where we pick back up with Peter. After Jesus has been led away from the tomb, or, or rather led away from, from the garden uh, with sh- in shackles, it says that Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You weren't one of this man's disciples, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire to keep warm. Peter was watching them, warming himself. Now, meanwhile, Peter was still, warming him, was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, I'm not. One of the high priest's servants, a, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, the rooster began to crow. Can't help but read this story. Um, just wondering, God, what happened? Like, what happened to, to Peter? Because again, maybe you're not familiar with Peter, or maybe just to, to catch us up, Peter did some extraordinary things. He, he again and again led the disciples, seemingly. Kind of, we, we get this picture of him being at, at point uh, with, with his disciples. Uh, Peter was the first person to recognize that Jesus was the Messiah, the first person among the disciples, at least. Uh, Peter was one of the disciples who was invited up to the mountaintop to behold the transfiguration of Jesus. Uh, Peter, Peter was the one who, 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 who saw Jesus walking on the water and stepped out of the boat and took walk, took a walk on the water. I mean, yeah, it didn't end that well for him, but everyone else stayed on the boat. Peter got out. It was Peter who Jesus said would be the rock on which Jesus would build his church. How did we get, how did he get here? And how did he get here so fast? In fact, why is this even included in Scripture? Well, in fact, not just in John's account, but all four accounts. If you were writing a story to try to inspire people for all time in order to follow Jesus, is this the kind of story and is this the picture of a person's life that you would choose to include? Probably, probably not. So let's, let's really put ourselves in Peter's shoes as, as we approach this. And here's what I mean by that. Let's, let's remember what Peter knew and what we know and where those two things are different. Now, Peter believes, 
that this is the Messiah, that, that Jesus is the victor. He believes he is on the side of victory. He has this hope that assures him that he has sided with the right team, that he has sided with the Messiah, that he is with Jesus, and thus at the, he, he's an early adopter of, of the Messiah. And so many people at that time were guilty of misunderstanding Jesus' role as the Messiah. They got the name right, but they misunderstood the role. They misunderstood the predictions. And Peter was, was certainly one of them because he was expecting this victor. And so Jesus being led away in handcuffs didn't fit. Now, Jesus said this would happen. It's not that he didn't warn them and predict that he would eventually be betrayed, that he would be arrested, that he would be crucified. But the thing is, when, when we read the story of Peter, when we read most of, of Scripture, especially the Gospels, as Christians, or at the very least, as people who are familiar with how the story ends, we read it with this mindset of the resurrection. We see his arrest in the shadow of the resurrection. We see the crucifixion in the shadow of the resurrection, not Peter. Peter is knowing and seeing just what's in front of him. And what he sees is the victor being defeated. The, mo the, the movement's over. This is, it's done. Peter bet on the wrong horse. It's all over. Everything Peter knew to be true wasn't. Everything Peter knew to be true was no longer true when Jesus was led away. He had constructed a faith in Jesus where Jesus as victor was the load-bearing wall of the structure. And what just happened when Jesus was led away, that load-bearing wall just got broken. It just fell down. And what happened with the rest of the house? It fell down with it. I have always seen Peter, and maybe you have as well, as someone that we can connect with as a person with some doubts and some uncertainty. And, and absolutely, we could preach, a, I, I could preach a message and it would be, or, or any pastor could preach a, a well-founded, biblically sound message about how, you know, we should not give up even when it feels like, like hope is, is lost and we should, even when we feel like we feel this despair, we should keep going. But I believe that it is also a story, and, and, I, and I see this just from my own evolving experience as a person and as a Christian, that this is also a story about doubt's spiritual cousin, which we're going to label today deconstruction. All right, so, so deconstruction, it, that is not a theological word. It's not, but this is, this is a word that is far outside of, of, of uh, theology in the Bible. Actually, it's, I don't even know if it's in the Bible, but point is, deconstruction is the dismantling of anything that's been construction, constructed. So uh, if anything has been built, basically it can be unbuilt. And that includes our beliefs, Deconstruction is a segment in the longer and larger journey of faith that many Christians experience today. Uh, and it is a time of wrestling between what a person has been taught to believe, then what they experience, and how to make sense of what doesn't connect. 
And for better or worse, actually, let me rephrase that, for better and worse, as we'll look at today, it is an increasingly popular and common experience for Christians today, especially uh, Christians who grew up in a church or a Christian household, especially for for young adults, middle high school students uh, and beyond. It's an increasingly shared experience uh, for this segment of the of the Christian population. Now, some have um, have glamorized uh, this phase of a person's life. Um, I don't agree with glamorizing deconstruction. Uh, as you see with Peter and as, well, I'm not going to get into a lot of personal stories. We, we actually, um, the, the Sunday Leftovers podcast we were record, recorded this week, Drew and I talked about this a little bit. We'll get into a little bit more in depth on, on personal stories. For now, I'm going to just let it live there instead of right here. But I can tell you, as someone who's been through it, and if you've been through it as well, it is not something that I think is worth glamorizing, because as we see with Peter, it is an extremely dark experience. Though I also don't accept the other extreme, which is to condemn a person for asking questions, for having wonderings, for looking at what they've been taught and trying to understand for themselves why, or to try to make sense of new questions that don't yet have answers in their life. I don't think that we should condemn a person for that. I think sometimes we condemn a person for that because those questions push against the status quo and that can make some of us feel threatened. The theologian named uh, Kenneth Archer, I think I, I love the way that he phrases deconstruction or defines it in his own words. What he says is it's the desert of skeptical criticism. It's a, a desert that if you find yourself in it, there, uh, it can lead, that, that wandering, that can lead to a deeper faith, a more sure trust in Jesus Christ as a person's Lord and Savior. There is a way out. However, there are also some who have died in that desert, whose faith have perished in the desert. People who are still wandering around in the desert, like the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, going in circles, not finding their way out. So is the case for some people today. So is the case for people in this room. In fact, I'm preaching to some people and I bet I'm preaching to more people than I even realize because some of us are still in this desert of skeptical criticism, asking questions, not having answers yet, and wondering what they believe, whether it be the core of what they believe or the nuances of faith and the application of scripture. Let's get back to Peter. (laughs) With Jesus out of the picture now, again, Peter's perspective, uh, he is descending very quickly into this deconstructive state. I mean, look, hours before he doubted, or hours before he denied Jesus, Peter was saying that he was going to die for him. And now here he is basically cussing out a, a kid in the temple courts. Nothing says emotionally fit like doing something like that for, with, a, with a child. Now, his doubt, Peter's doubt, is, is not whether Jesus was Jesus, whether Jesus was, was real. His, his doubt, his wondering, the things he's trying to make sense of is, is Jesus everything he said about himself? Are all of those things true? Because again, what we're seeing is what Peter's been taught and now what Peter is experiencing. Forget the resurrection, 
because Peter doesn't know about that yet. What we're seeing is what he believes, what he's experiencing, and we're seeing him in this gap where he hasn't quite brought these two things into union yet. He will, but not yet. He's in the desert. Now, <clears throat> I, have, um, I have never personally, I have never known a faith without doubt. I have never known what it means to be a Christian without doubt. I've talked to people who, who have said that, that they don't doubt anything, that they're so 100% sure of, of everything that they believe. And some of those people, I believe them. But not everyone. You see, I'm jealous of you, if that's you. If you don't have any doubt about what you believe, I wish I had a faith like that. You can just believe that Jesus is everything that he says he is in scripture and be so sure of, of your interpretation. I, I wish I had that. You see, I am a skeptical person and some of you are skeptical people and my religious beliefs are not immune to my skepticism. In fact, it is impossible for me to box up my religious beliefs and somehow separate them from the skepticism that I experience in every other place in my life. I'm always wondering if I'm wrong. And because of that, I'm always asking questions and seeking answers to questions that don't yet have an answer. Maybe like me, you've been told that doubt is some sort of, that, that doubt is the same as denial, that you're a bad Christian if you have doubts. But doubt, doubt doesn't, doesn't mean that you don't believe. Doubt just is an indication that you're thinking. A professor named A.J. Swimboda, uh, he once said, kicking the tires doesn't mean that you hate the car. In fact, I think it's a sign of faith for some people who have, con who have enough confidence in what they believe to take their deeply held religious convictions and lay them at the feet of a sovereign God in order for him to apply his own criticism and critique so that we might be able to love him more. But if deconstruction, this experience that many Christians have, especially young Christians these days, is like traversing a desert, then it also means that there's not a single path in order to get through. That there's not this way that everyone goes, but everyone takes, goes on their own journey in their own unique ways and no two stories are the same. And also, there are different ways of concluding this journey. Some make it out of the desert and with renewed faith. And unfortunately, as again, some of you know, some do not. While de doubt and deconstruction uh, is something that has always been experienced by believers. I mean, we see it with, with Peter. It has become, interestingly, more in vogue today. And there is this invisible cultural force that is so much, it's bigger than religion, but includes religion. But there's this cultural movement going on. And sometimes it's hard to see these movements because we're a, a part of them. We're all kind of in this ocean together, uh, this ocean of, of culture together. But there's definitely this, this uh, a pressure right now to rebel against that which we were taught and break from the past. Because if you do, 
it becomes a marker of you being an evolved or open-minded person. Now, this is bigger than, than religion. We're talking, we're talking social norms, we're talking politics, and we're talking faith here. But there is this cultural pressure to break from the past in order to prove that a person is evolved or an open-minded thinker. Uh, it, it's this pressure to identify as basically post, post anything. And this pride in identifying as post something, post-modern, post-Christian, post-conservative, post-liberal, post, again, post anything. Because when we can be identify as post whatever, fill in the blank, post-Christian, then what we can do is, is we can look back and say, I used to believe that. And I've investigated it, and I've transcended it. Why haven't you? This is deconstruction by pride, which is just kind of deconstruction as a, as a vanity project. It's, it's deconstruction to stroke a person's ego, to make, oneself, to make yourself feel, again, more evolved, to identify yourself as an open-minded thinker who doesn't just accept what they've been taught, who doesn't just accept old answers. Even if perhaps some of those old answers are right, they're old so they can't exist today. However, deconstruction, I don't think, should be vilified either. After all, think back in time. Every major social change occurred through deconstruction, through the breaking down of a culture's or an individual's or a family's deeply held beliefs when often it starts with one person who begins to think a little bit differently than the rest, who turns their head to swim upstream and to question things that have always been there. Think about the institution, uh, the, the legal institution of slavery in the United States and Europe. It was perpetuated by Christians, though over time, gradually, more and more Christians began to look at the faith that was given to them, that was never questioned, that was always assumed to be correct, and they began to look at that faith and say, something doesn't line up here. And they began to read their Bibles a little differently. They began to, to evaluate what they've been taught with what they experience, including experiencing in Scripture. And over time, the tides changed. And then Christians began to be the ones who were fighting against the institution of slavery in Europe and the United States. Think about the, 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 Refor the Reformation 500 years ago was a time of significant deconstruction as people looked at the traditions that were so deeply held within the religious faith and within the church. And they began to say, maybe, but maybe not. And it led to a movement, a movement that we experience today here at Rosewood as a Protestant denomination. What we're getting at here is deconstruction through confession. Of being humble enough to recognize that I don't and you don't have it all together. When we deconstruct with our hearts open to confession rather than pride, we can find our way to the other side of the desert. We can find our way through the skepticism and discover answers that will lead us to being different people, different Christians, though still Christians. People who love Jesus 
and find themselves relieved of some of the baggage that has been passed down that didn't have to be there. Let's skip ahead. Oh boy, you're going to stay late today. I'm looking at the time. Sorry about that. Let's skip ahead in the story. We can't end here. Skip ahead in the story to chapter 21 of John. Uh, This is what happens to Peter. Look, he he is rebuilt, but he is not built in the same way. In in chapter 21 of Peter, what we find is Jesus seeing Peter and some of the other disciples out in a boat. It's it's so interesting to me. They're off doing the thing, the, the very thing that Jesus found them doing in the first place. They've reverted back to really the only thing that they knew as they're in this swirl of of confusion and experience of having seen their, their savior, not just be arrested now, but crucified and buried. And so they're off fishing and Jesus is on the shore and he calls them in and they realize it's him. And there he has an interaction with them. And there we hear this, we hear this exchange between Jesus and, and Peter. When they had finished eating, Uh, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Then Jesus said to him, follow me. Peter deconstructed his faith when his experience of Jesus just no longer fit and no longer made sense. And now in this iconic series, this iconic exchange between Jesus and Peter, we see the, the, we see the point when it turns. Where, Jesus, where, where Peter is no longer deconstructing, but he is reconstructing. He's reconstructing his faith, and he's not being rebuilt alone, and he's not being rebuilt in the same way that he was built before. Uh, this exchange reminds me of, a, of, a, of another exchange uh, from a little less holy uh, book. It's The Hobbit. Uh, it, it, the Hobbit, The Unexpected Journey. Um, there's kind of this very relevant exchange that occurs. It's between Gandalf and Bilbo. Don't worry if you don't know who they are. <laughs> Gandalf says, uh, I am looking for someone to share in an adventure that I'm arranging, and it's very difficult to find someone. Bilbo says, I should think so in these parts. We are plain, quiet folk and have no use for adventures. Nasty, disturbing things, uncomfortable things, make you late for dinner. I can't think what anyone sees in them. Gandalf says, you'll have a tale or two to tell of your own when you get back. Can you promise I will come back? No. And if you do, you will not be the same. To understand Peter's redemption, we have to first look at his failures. And I don't just mean his denials. First of all, Jesus reinstates Peter by asking him three questions. Kind of basically retracing the steps as Peter denied Jesus three times. And the thing is, if Peter had done that once, you you might have thought uh, lapse in judgment, right? If he did it twice, you might say, look at his circumstances, give the guy a break. But three times, there's intention there. And so Jesus confronts him because a, a whoops, I'm sorry, 
doesn't cut it. Now, you might think that Jesus is being cruel here. Like he's, he's you, I mean, you can kind of hear the pain in Jesus's voice as John writes about this exchange. But it kind of, in a way, it kind of sounds like, like Jesus is, is twisting the, the knife. But, but he's not. He's using a knife in the same way that a surgeon would use a knife or, or a scalpel. He's, he's trying to uh, dissect and cut out this diseased part of Peter, of Peter's faith, so that the whole could be saved. So let's retrace Peter's steps even further, though. Uh, we already talked about his highlights. Let's look at his lowlights. Uh, for one, he tries to tell Jesus how to do his job, basically. He tries to tell him what to do. And Peter says in Matthew, or Jesus says in Matthew 16, Satan, get behind me. It takes a lot for Jesus to call you Satan. Peter then gets in a fight with the disciples. He tries to, he, he believes that he's greater than all of the other disciples. He's missing the point. And then he misses the point even further. He tries to be this tough guy and defend Jesus by violently, when, when this mob comes, he tries to, he does successfully attack a person, cuts their ear off, and, and thus unfortunately proves that through all this time that Peter has spent at the feet of Jesus, he hasn't learned anything. Here he is acting violently in the midst of the Prince of Peace. We see through the stories of the four Gospels that Peter has, over time, grown prideful of his accomplishments. And the irony of pride when it comes to our spiritual life is that pride positions us as the savior of our own lives because we can look at our acts, our works, our strengths, our abilities, and begin to see that as the thing that saves us, that as what got us to where we are rather than the grace of Jesus. Peter hits I think so close to home for, for many of us because he embodies what so many of us feel that I feel that on the one hand, we are full of faith and courage and boldness. But then on the other hand, we see our failings and our weakness and our faithlessness. Despite everything that Peter did, what we see before the resurrection, is that Peter is not ready for what's going to come next. For what God has prepared for him, there are things that Peter has that he is going to need to let go of, release, and reform. Before he can go on to become the catalyst for the spread of this faith that would go to envelop every country in the world and include a billion, over a billion people today. Before Peter could be that, he needed to deconstruct a faith that had been built upon himself rather than Christ, that had been built upon his efforts and his works rather than the grace of Jesus. And like Gandalf's promise, Peter would return, but he would not be the same. Peter turned his back on Jesus. But in this story, there's another story running parallel to Peter, one that has many similarities to Peter, and that is of Judas. Judas also, also doubted. But here's the thing. Peter came back. Judas gave up. Judas is going to be who we look at next week. For now, please pray with me. God, how beautiful it is that you are faithful even when we are faithless. 
God, even when we feel and when we are weak, you are strong. When we are confused, you are the source of wisdom. And God, I, I, I pray for every person who's here. And I join in prayer with every person on every, that is on each person's heart here who is experiencing this desert of skeptical criticism, this time of deconstruction where they don't know what they believe, where they question the things that perhaps they were taught growing up. And God, I pray that in that desert, your Holy Spirit would be their guide, their guide through this journey as Peter journeyed. And Jesus, we pray that these friends of ours and that we ourselves would be led to the other side, to renewed faith, to a more sure and confident faith in you as their Lord and Savior. God, meet us in that desert. Meet our friends in that desert. Meet our kids and our grandkids who are in that desert. And Jesus, lead us home. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for making Rosewood a part of your day. Now go in peace to love and serve the Lord.